Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Best Served Cold, the true crime podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. I'm one of your true dinkum Aussie co-hosts. My name is Laura and I am now served with 70% less uh, tumorous moles. Nice. Fantastic. And I am your other host, Tama J. The J stands for Just Dance. Nice. I like that. You're welcome. Also, to anyone who doesn't personally know me, my joke would have made zero sense. Let me just provide you with some context. Please do. I, the dedicated podcast host, am hosting this show post-op. I had a very small operation this morning to remove a little cancerous mole I had underneath my eye. Um, Had I been a good girl and listened to my mother five years ago and got it checked out, it would have been much less dramatic. They would have just lopped it off at the doctor's surgery, but because I let it go far on too long, I had to go to the hospital, get sedated, and now I've got to have this tape on my face for two weeks. So lesson of the week... Mothers are always right. But wasn't it that too that the growth hadn't actually grew until like recently? Well, no, it's always been like a little cancerous thing. It just got bigger. Right. So okay. I should have gotten it fixed years ago and it would have been an issue. Okay. But anyway, moral of the story, mums are always right. Always listen to your mother. Yeah. Uh, we are going to start the show off with a little Oh, yeah, new. new segment we've decided because yeah. we always talk about how... We drink wine and talk about crime. Mm. So we decided that as part of this show, instead of drinking the same wine every week, we're going to try a new bottle of wine each week. Each week. And give you a little review. So if you're not a wine fan, if you're just here for the crime, you don't give a shit about the wine, just hit that little 15-second fast-forward for maybe like, I'm going to say four times. Practice your finger dexterity. (laughs) And go. Done. Well, okay, so uh, this week we are drinking from a company called Tread Softly. It's a Pinot Noir and it's from South Australia. And uh, I like the fact that on the back it says for every 12 bottles they sell, they plant a, plant a tree, which yeah. I thought was quite nice. It's, um, apparently it's a naturally lighter in alcohol. It's sustainably grown and it has minimal preservatives, which is always... Kind of like what we're going for, and I, I really like Pinot Pinot Noir. So yeah, it's a good middle ground it. between white and red. If you, it was actually, um, I think it was our segue into reds was Pinot Noir because mm. it was like a, mm-hmm. it's a blend between the two. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, that was where it all went downhill. Yeah, that's where the addiction started. But I do really like the packaging. It has like cool, like vintage flower. Or this, this is not sponsored. Just no, FYI, at all. Um, yet, yet, there's a way to so. monetize everything, people. <laughs> But yeah, it's got like cool vintage flowers on it. Um, I quite like it. I've had a couple of little sippy sips. Quite like it. Yeah. I'd give it a solid 8 out of 10. It's um crazy seeing like Pinot Noirs when you drink mostly Merlots and Shiraz and like natural ones as well because they're generally it's like very Yeah, it's very cloudy. like... This and this is very clear. clear. It kind of looks like f- fruit juice. Mm. Like an adult fruit juice. How's your week been, Tama? Uh, it's been pretty good. Uh, just still, um, still working from home for me, and um, same, same old chugging along. Um, got a few projects I'm working on. 
I recently saw a TV show that I can't remember the name. Oh, that's right. I've been watching Mindhunter over again. It was a really good show. I can't What's remember the what it was name? called. We yeah, watched d- Umbrella Academy season yeah, two. Yeah, season two really of good. Umbrella Academy. That was really good. I really liked that. My favorite character is Klaus, if anyone was wondering. Mm. Drag Race Canada is just confusing me because I just don't yeah. know what the judges... Giving me mixed feelings. I don't feelings. know if I'm looking at something different than they're looking at. I don't agree with nearly anything they say, but that's yeah. why I don't judge drag, I guess. And I wonder if it's like a certain producer has more sway over the show now because Rue isn't the host. Yeah, I don't know. Something like that, because it feels kind of producer heavy, you know, like the main seasons tend to have, you know, you tend to agree with everything they say. There's a clear, like, you know, good and bad and whatever. But like this one and All Stars has kind of just felt really like phoned in. Mm. Oh, also just another little uh, word I can't remember. Housekeeping (laughs) thing. Um, we are introducing a, a new, very short segment. It'll only be like three to five minutes where we're going to chat to some people we know or to a fan of the show. And we want to hear their six degrees of separation story about a murderer or a serial killer. So for our very first segment, we have a very, very lovely guy who left us the nicest review and is just genuinely one of the sweetest people I've ever talked to online. Um, Tom is going to be our very first story. I don't want to spoil anything, but make sure at the end, if you're normally someone who tunes out of the outros, because I know I am when I listen to true crime podcasts, I'm like, once the story is done, I'm like, peace out. Don't peace out. Stick around for Tom's story because it is so freaking cool and very worth a listen. Um, did you have anything else to input before we... Get started? No, not really. Um, so we're going to be doing that at the end of the episode. Yeah. Fun. So it'll just be Tom's Tom's recorded his own story. I'm now having that fear where I've said the wrong name. Oh, God. It's definitely Tom. Okay. I think, yeah, okay. Just double check in case we've given a completely different person. I can just dub over. Do you know, do you, do you ever yeah. get that where like you're certain of someone's name and then as soon as you start saying it out loud, you're yeah. like, oh, shit. Especially because I'm terrible with names. And then when I see someone I've met before a couple of times, I got to like pr- pretend like I know their fucking names. Like, hey, dude. I yeah. Don't hey, know who the fuck you are. You? Yeah. Nice to meet you, guy. That's why I always introduce my friends to people first. So they go, hey, yeah. I'm blah, blah, blah. It's a smart um, way to do it. Yeah. That is the smart, smarty, smart way to do it. I'm a sly guy. Whose turn is it? We always do this. We need to like learn to check before we... I believe it's my turn. I think, yeah, it is. It is your turn. I, I so. should know this. You should. But uh, I have too many other things going on in my brain. Yeah, there's too much going on in our lives. So uh, this week, I've decided to cover what's known on and off as either the Candyman killings or just the killings by Dean Coral. It's a man who shot, uh, who, sorry, who killed uh, a number of young boys over a span of two and a half years with the help of a 17-year-old accomplice that actually at one point in time was his victim. Dean Coral 
it's a very interesting story because it's one that starts with almost like a his accomplice Elmer Wayne Henley is almost like a a victim during the start of this and kind of just like you know chugging along on the sidelines kind of just like watching things and seemingly in his interviews he's talking about how he pretty much just did everything for money but he's kind of present for most of the crimes that are committed mm. so he's serving time um uh, for like you know essentially being an accomplice to all these murders so to the, the to everyone in in Dean Coral's Houston Heights neighborhood a few miles west of downtown Houston, Texas. De- Dean Coral seemed like a decent, ordinary man. He spent uh, a num- a time, uh, time, some of his time in a small candy factory that his mother owned in Houston Heights and got along well with all the neighborhood boys. He even gave out free candy to local school children, earning him the name Candyman. Later on, when he would be to be murdered in 1973 by Elmer Wayne Henley, the young man's confession revealed the horrifying de- details of Coral's two-and-a-half-year-long killing spree, one that would make him one of the most worst, well-known serial killers that America has ever known. So let's jump in. And also, just to, to sidetrack here a little bit, we're kind of going a little bit of a back to our roots because I think we've we've sort of like, you know, swayed off the whole famous serial killer backstory thing in terms of like what I've been covering. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been doing like more so current events and like unsolved mysteries. Well, I'm doing another unsolved mystery. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just sort of saying like I'm happy to be back to the oh okay you know like the where we kind of started you know back to our roots bit of a, bit like a nice little sweet moment. <laughs> so the uh, early life and career of Dean Candyman Coral. So what is a standard trope in serial killer lore is their later depravity can often be traced back to some of their childhood events or trauma. And it's difficult to see anything in what is known about Dean Coral's early life that could have put him on a path of becoming one of America's worst serial killers. So he was born in 1939, Fort Wayne, Indiana. His parents reportedly never had a happy marriage and they would fight often. Coral's father was known to be a strict disciplinarian. Dis- yeah, I think that's. Um, I mean, we know my track record with trying yeah, to pronounce true. long words. It's so weird because I feel like we're both very intelligent people outside of this podcast, and then it's like your vocabulary skills just yeah. turn to a small puddle on the floor when I you think try it's and like, speak into a microphone. I think it's like high school speech syndrome, which is not an official thing, but I think I just made up where it's like speaking in public kind of into a microphone to people listening is kind of like daunting. Just quickly, did you ever do that thing when you'd be taking turns in class, like reading a paragraph or something? So you count the number of people ahead of you and figure out which paragraph is going to be the one you read and like do a weird like practice read inside your head? Yeah, I would be... Yeah, that's social anxiety for you. I would be sweating leading up and dreading. Mm. I think it would be almost worse being one of the last kids knowing your paragraph is like coming up later on. Because you've got to wait for your paragraph, paragraph to come up. And it's just the most harrowing experience ever. Mm. Okay. Going back to um, Coral's early life. So whether or not his father's strict methods 
um, resulted in far worse abuse than any other typical corporal punishment that was generally accepted back in, in the 1940s and 50s. It's not known. But after his parents' divorce for the second time, um, they briefly had a reconciled following their first divorce back in 1946. His mother remarried, this time to a traveling salesman, and the family settled down in a small town of Vidor, Texas. In school, Cora was a well-behaved, if solitary, young man. His grades were decent, uh, enough for him to escape notice for either good or for ill, and occasionally dated girls from the neighborhood or school. So typically normal, you know, life, nothing too out there, you know, rocky uh, rocky marriage with his parents there, but nothing too out of the ordinary. It was his mother's candy shop that would be the the important factor here in his backstory, which separates him from a typical American boy's story. In the 1950s, um, and connecting him to the later 1973 murders, um, where he brutally murdered, mutilated, and sexually assaulted 30 boys between the ages of 13 and 20, there's that's the one sort of connection that we can kind of make dating back to his backstory. Right. So the candy company, initially starting in the family garage, Pecan Prince, the candy company that Coral's mother and stepfather started in the mid-1950s bought by Dean Coral, uh, brought Dean Coral into the candy business from the very start. Well, his stepfather sold the candy in his sales route and his mother managed the actual business, Coral and his younger brother operated the machines that produced the candy and the company sold. Hmm. So after his mother divorced her second husband in 1963, Coral had graduated high school and had been making the candy for the family business for two year, for years. Sorry. After a brief two-year stint back in Indiana for, to care for his widowed grandmother, he returned to Houston to help his mother with a new venture. Calling it the Coral Candy Company, Coral's mother started the business in Houston Heights, in the Houston Heights area around the same year, naming Dean Coral the vice president and his younger brother the company's sec- secretary treasurer. Other than a brief 10-month period in 1964 where Coral served in the U.S. Army after being drafted, from which he was honorably discharged under a hardship exemption. There we go. Coral worked... one of the threes, isn't it? Coral worked at his mother's company until it was dissolved several years later. So we always, always find that one thing, which is, you know, found in... The early behavioral science units studies, you know, back in the 70s. It was always like a horrific childhood, a head injury, or military service. Exactly. What specifically the relationship with mother or father that causes distress. Yeah. Animal abuse, things like that. So, after almost immediately after the company started, though, um, there was warning signs about Dean Coral. So as a young teenage boy who worked in the company complained to Coral's mum that Dean Coral had made sexual advantages towards him. Mm. His mother later on would fire that boy, but there were other boys around the candy factory as well, most of whom were runaways and other troubled youths. Dean Coral had an easy rapport with the teens and young men and was known to give free candy to local school children. 
Inside the small factory, Cole reportedly installed a pool table where employees of the company and their friends, nearly all of them being teenagers, would congregate throughout the day. Coral was openly flirtatious and befriended many of them. Among them was a man called David Brooks, who was just 12 years old in sixth grade, who, like many other children in the area, was first introduced to Coral with offers of free candy and a place to hang out. Mm. Coral became grooming Brooks over a period of two years and soon began sexually abusing the boy, then around 14, and bribing him with gifts or money for his silence. That's sad. Yeah. Seventy, the first known victim of Dean Coral was killed. A boy called Jeffrey Conan, an 18-year-old college freshman, was hitchhiking home from Houston to the University of Texas in Austin. He was likely picked up by Coral with an offer to ride to his parents' house as Coral lived very near the intersection between where Coran had been dropped off last time. Around this time, Brooks discovered Coral while he was raping two teenage boys in his home and Coral later confessed to Brooks that he had killed them. To buy Brooks' silence, Coral brought him a Chevrolet Corvette and offered him 5 or $10 for each boy he brought Coral, which Brooks agreed to. One of the boys Brooks thought brought to Coral was Elmer Wayne Henley, but rather than rape and kill the boy, he tried to enlist him in his rape and murder scheme as well as with the same bounty per victim brought to Coral that he offered Brooks. Henley had said that he initially refused the offer, but his family's financial hardships caused him to accept it. Together between December 13, 1970 and July 25, 1973, Brooks and Henley would lure at least 28 boys ranging from the ages of 13 to 20 to Coral. The three used Coral's Plymouth GTX or a white van to entice boys to come with them with Coral using candy, alcohol, the promise of going to a party to get each teenager inside. Anyone who ever managed to get in never came back. It's very sad. Very sad. And this is kind of where the original, like, don't take candy from strangers. A stranger, thing yeah. Is that actually where the... I think this is legitimately where that saying came from. Because that's really interesting if that's actually where it came from. Because, um, and I think it's also just the whole mythology of the Candyman mm. originated with this because this is kind of how he started it. Yeah. He's grooming boys at a young age, enticing them with candy. So, Dean Coral and his accomplices would take the boys to his apartment or house where they would bound and gag each victim through various methods. Then Coral first forced them to write postcards or notes home to their families to say they were okay, after which the three would tie the victim to a wooden torture board, whereupon the three would then rape him. Jesus. Afterwards, some were strangled to death, others were shot, but regardless of the method, every boy brought to Cora was murdered, with Brooks and Henley actively participating in the crimes. And it's interesting because Henley maintains that he never participated, but he was there. Mm. And as we can sort of see through, you know, what we know about him and what we heard about him and statements and even the Mindhunter TV show, he has this mindset of enjoy everything you do, even if it's not great. Yeah. So I don't know, from there you can kind of like, you know, get a good understanding of everything. And the, the worst part about these torches is they would often keep the victims there for several days 
torture them over several days, rape them over several days, and then eventually killing them. So one of Cora's victims, Mark Scott, was 17 when he disappeared on the evening of April 20, 1972. His parents reported him missing after calling classmates, friends, and neighbors to see if they knew anything. A couple of days later, the Scott family received a postcard from Mark saying that he had found a job in Austin that paid $3 an hour and they should not worry about him. However, the Scots didn't believe this at fucking all and they didn't accept that their son would suddenly leave town without saying goodbye and they knew something had most likely gone mm, wrong. Yeah. So like many other families of Coral's victims, they received little, if any, help from the Houston Police Department in finding their missing sons which is another factor coming to play with how many, the resulting number of victims. Yeah. So this is a quote from Everett Walter. I camped on that police department door for eight months. He, Everett Walter told reporters after police had found the remains of his two sons, Jerry, 13, and Donald, 15, both victims of coral. He continues to say, but all they did was say, why are you down here? You know your boys are runaways. Jesus. Other families of Coral's victims reported similar indifference to the family's pleas for help finding their sons. In Texas, the early 70s, it wasn't illegal for a child to run away from home, so the chief of Houston Police Department claimed there was nothing they could do to help them. The chief was voted out of office in the first election held after Coral's murders became public. Yeah, good. For good. On August 8th, 1973, two and a half years and 28 known murders. It's starting to sound like the Atlanta murders, really. Coral finally turned on Henley after luring two teens, Tim Curley and Rhonda Williams, the only teenage girl known to have been targeted during the Houston mass murders to Coral's apartment. William knew, knew Dean Coral from the neighborhood and trusted Henley, who was her friend. So she didn't just suspect that she was in any danger. They'd partied all night, huffing paint, getting high and drinking heavily. And Henley said that when he woke up, he discovered that he was tied up alongside Curly and Williams and that Coral was screaming at him, waving his twenty-two caliber pistol. I'm going to kill you, Coral threatened, but thir- first I'll have my fun. What was he like pissed off that he bought a girl? He, Coral was a homosexual. He, yeah. He, quite clearly targeted men, young young boys, I should say. And and it's quite clear that um that that Henley is not gay. Well yeah. He he's obviously got something there where he's participating in it and he's hanging out with Coral and we kind of later learned that Coral's the missing father figure in his life. Right. Okay. You know, so he's willing to do anything for him. Yeah. And he doesn't see... If you keep in mind, it's like the, it's the 70s. It's a it's a weird time for homosexuality. It's only recently just been um, unclassified as a deviance. Mm. Okay. So I don't think he didn't see it as an issue. I didn't see that Coral would react that way. So, But in resulting in this, he ends up tied up to the torture board as well. Right. Kenley pleaded with Coral to untie him, saying that the two of them could rape and kill Williams and Curly together. Eventually, Coral did untie Henley and brought Curly to the bedroom 
to be tied up to the torture board. In doing so, Cora placed the gun on a nightstand next to the bed. Williams, who survived the attack and only spoke publicly about it in 2013, recalled how Coral's behavior had visibly shaken something loose in Henley's mind. A quote, He stood at my feet and just all of a sudden told Dean this couldn't keep going on. He couldn't let him keep killing his friends and that it had to stop, she recalled. Dean looked up and he was surprised. So he started getting up and was like, you're not going to do anything to me. Then, without another word, Dean Coral's rape, torture, and murder spree came to an end as Wayne Henley shot him six times with the gun and take he had taken from the nightstand, killing him. Henley and Brooks were sentenced after the Houston mass murders were revealed. Henley untied Kearney and Williams, then called the police. He and Brooks confessed shortly afterwards, and Henley offered to show police where the boys they and Coral had murdered were buried. Within a week, investigators found 17 victims buried in a boathouse shed that Coral had been renting. Another six bodies were in the Bolivar, Bolivar Peninsula, while four victims were buried in a woodland area at Lake Sam Rayburn. Police didn't identify the 28th victim till 1983, almost 10 years later, and there's no way in telling how many other Coral victims... Uh, there might have been that Hanley and Brooks didn't know about. And that's the thing, you know, he's recruiting them and this is coming from the only two surviving people that were there. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Henley was convicted of six murders and sentenced to six life sentences, served, con- served concurrently, while Brooks was convicted of one murder and received a life sentence as well. Henley has remained a particularly controversial figure of the last few decades, obviously, including uh, putting artwork that he had created in a prison up for sale at an auction, creating his own Facebook page as a public figure. Elmer Wayne Henley is also featured in the second season of Netflix's serial killer crime drama Mindhunter, portrayed by actor Robert Aramayo, sorry, who also plays young Eddard Stark in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, how cool is that? Because I remember watching the TV show and thinking, man, this fucking guy looks familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So very else, very little else is known about Dean Coral, and a few only a few photos of him are ever known to exist. After his death, those who knew him would have every reason in the world to want to forget him and discard any memories they had of him. Yeah, of course. Uh, him being one of the worst serial killers the country had ever seen. You know, there would be worse murderers to come and worse mass murderings to come as well but this particular one you know and we and we talk about it all the time there's a there's a specific like murder fingerprint that they these murderers have yeah their own particular style their the way they they do things the victims they choose the mythology the personality it's all um very interesting but yeah that's mm. the that's the famous murders of Dean Coral. That was another one that I'd heard bits and pieces yes. about, but didn't know a lot. It's particularly interesting about. that what's interesting about it is he takes two seemingly normal young men who actually show similar signs of Being his killers. backstory. Yeah. These backstories that we find, you know, like a, 
odd, if not troubled family backgrounds, um, sometimes, you know, um, harming animals. And it kind of poises the question, would they have just gone on this route anyway if it wasn't for Dean Coral? Or did Dean Coral simply transform them into this? Or, you know, did he accelerate their, you know, their murderous tendencies or did he start it for them? That's a really interesting question. I wonder if anyone sort of made a educated sort of surmise about that. I think it's been discussed, but I would like to research it more and kind of get a good understanding on it because it's a... It's an interesting thing. It's a similar thing that's discussed amongst the Manson murders. Where, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The similar thing. They're all kind of runaways, the troubled teens. You know, he feeds them drugs, brainwashes them, yes, but they're also people that are highly influential and have these backstories that could, if you throw a little spanner in the works, could completely derail them from being mm. normal human beings. Yeah. And that's the... That's the thing. I, we get a lot of people saying um, who aren't particularly, I don't want to say like educated as if I'm a fucking, you know, psychologist and a expert in the human mind, but we get a lot of people who aren't particularly fans of true crime or psychology or human beings in general. <laughs> who like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not really a fan yeah. of human beings in general. But we have a lot of people sort of, you know, being like, oh, I think people are just born a certain way. I think that's kind of a gross understatement for the human mind. Yeah. That you're just born a certain way. Well, it's kind of interesting. Like part of me, so for anyone who doesn't know, I'm currently studying full time. And basically how it works for, because I know a lot of the people that listen to our podcast are from America, how it works with the Australian University uh, curriculum, I guess, is you have like, core subjects that are related to your degree, but you have like a total number of credits you need to make up to graduate. And for the first year, the subjects that are related to your course don't necessarily make up the credits. So you have to do what's called like a filler subject. So one of my filler subjects that I started and ended up dropping just because it was too much workload was psychology. And I was actually really interested in the subject, like the topic we were about to start, which is nature versus nurture. And I would have actually really liked to have learnt more about that. I think it would have actually been like quite helpful for this show, but it was just, you know, I work full time, I study full time, I've got this podcast, I've got the design business, like it was just a bit bit too much for me. But uh, yeah, yeah think, the whole yeah. nature versus nurture argument is it's fascinating. I think you put it perfectly when you, you were telling me that it's an interesting subject, but when it's not your primary focus, it's kind of hard to dedicate the time that it deserves. Yeah, for sure. Like I was staring down the barrel of a two and a half thousand word essay Mm. on nature versus nurture when it's completely unrelated to my degree, which is marketing. And it's an interesting discussion because it's, you know, you can definitely be overprotective and then on the flip side, not prepare your children enough. Yeah, I think there's definitely a balance. But then again, I do think that someone's nature also plays a part. Yeah. But I also think there's some in some way, like being overprotective isn't just protecting children from realities of the world, rather like overly strict and corporal punishment, you know, in a way can be overprotective. Yeah. Like protecting them from forming regular 
relationships with people because you don't want them hanging out with certain people or, you know, doing certain things. There's a good, like, there's many different ways to go about it, I think. Yeah. But I don't necessarily think the topic of is as simple as nature versus nurture. I think no, it's like nature influenced by nurture and vice versa. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. Like, I think you can have an, have an Ed Kemper who nature-wise take out the part where he brutally murdered a lot of people. Uh, Nature-wise, he seems like quite a level-headed person. Obviously, he had those psychotic tendencies because you have to have those sort of psychotic, like lack of empathy, those sorts of things to be able to do the things he did. But I really believe that his the nurture of his childhood probably highly influenced him just maybe being someone who was like a little bit socially awkward and not able to read social situations versus someone who turned into a horrific serial killer. Well, what's really interesting is he fully understands his situation. He knows that he's not a very approachable man. The way he looks, the way he talks, the way he is, isn't a desirable thing to the opposite sex. And he expresses this. He knows this. And he states and has said that the only way for him to get his sexual gratification was in the ways that he performed. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And he's fully, like, aware of it as mm. well. Well, good story, Tama. I liked that one. Thank you. I think that was a little bit of a short one, but... That's um, okay, because we have one. the little added bit at the end, so... Yeah. It's it's fine. So it was preemptive. Yeah. We'll call it that. Good job. I Thank enjoyed you. that. I enjoyed um, that quite a bit. Yeah, I would love to see any comments about your thoughts on um, the Coral Murders to mm. anyone listening. Yeah, that would be good. So who you got? Who you got, baby? I've got another unsolved one. So buckle in because it's highly unsatisfying. Oh boy! <laughs> These are always it's just, just like so unsatisfying to listen to. Yeah. Because this one in particular, I'm so shocked that I had literally never heard of this, and it is so awful. And yet, I only stumbled across this whilst. I started doing research for a completely different person and it just popped up in the sidebar. It was listed as another um, famous American case in the sidebar. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Clicked on it. I was like, this is way more interesting. Well, actually, that's not true. I do want to, I was going to do Israel Keys, who is a fucked up dude who I will cover in another episode. Interesting. But uh, not for today. So today, as you may have gouged, Gouged? Gauge. As you may have gouged. As you may have gouged. Gouge your ears out because this show is so (laughs) shit. We can't Uh, pronounce things. Best served cold. The show known for making people gouge their ears out. We should rename our show to Awkward English. (laughs) Stop making me laugh. (laughs) Every time. So, because of where the little thing I got cut off my face is, every time I laugh and like, my cheekbones go up. It just hurts. So Which I need to just. It's very difficult because I'm the most. I'm one of the most funniest dudes in the world. Well, there you go. Something I didn't have to laugh at. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh shit. Uh, so this week, as you may have gauged by the title, I'm doing the Oklahoma City Butcher, who, like I said, this story is horrific, and I don't understand how I've not heard of this before. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of that at all. 
So the story begins in, surprise, surprise, Oklahoma in 1976, where three men, Gene Shaws, Jimmy Bishop, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Deco Duke, who were at the time employed by a standard drilling company, they're all sitting together having a chat waiting for the the boss or the boss whoever was the site manager I guess was going to come and you know tell them you need to go here and do this blah 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 mm-hmm. so they get bored of waiting and, and around 3 p.m. they decide I'm bored we're going to go explore the area so they find an abandoned house in the area Um, of the neighborhood of Research Park. The house, which has since been demolished and replaced with a big apartment block, had been abandoned for some time at that time, and it's all boarded up and pretty, like, gross-looking. So they try and get in through the front door, and it's all boarded up. So they start exploring. One of the men finds a hole in the side of the house, while the other two get in through the unlocked back door. Now, when the two men enter the back door, the door sort of hits an object when they go to open the door and without sort of thinking, mm-hmm. thinking it's probably like a, a bucket or something, one of the men sort of kicks it off to the side. So all three men have been reported as saying as soon as they enter the house, this stench of death hits them. Shit. The house is full of junk and clutter and I guess from the sounds of it, it's possible that people have already gone in and looted the house and presume, presumably like homeless people may have gone there and drug deals probably went down there. It's that sort of... Yeah, okay. Like... That kind of vibe. Yeah. So being that it's dark, they're wandering around with a garden hoe that they find, sort of poking and prodding things, which in Australia is smart because we have so many spiders that will kill you. Yeah, if you, you kind of need to do that. Yeah, just like don't touch anything that you can't see inside of in Australia. Yeah. So they're wandering around the house with the, the garden hoe, which in my head is a very funny thing to picture. <laughs> and one of them prods an, or what they think is an empty popcorn bucket from oh, the dear. local movie theatre. The bucket tips over and something rolls out of it. And at first they think that it's the head of a dog, but they quickly realise that it's not a dog. It's a human head which has been placed inside the popcorn bucket. And the head is so badly disfigured that this is why they think at first that it's a dog's head, not a human. So they get the fuck out and try and get someone to help them because obviously it's in the 70s, no one has a mobile phone. So they're running around trying to find someone's house to let them into, I presume, so they can call the police. Funnily enough, guess what date it is when they're trying to do this? What date? Mm. The date. What would be the worst date during the year to try and say you've just found a dead body? Halloween? April 1st, baby. So no one lets them in. No one believes that they, everyone just thinks they're pulling an April Fool's prank. (laughs) So so eventually, after running around, they find someone or they find a phone or a payphone. It doesn't really say. So they manage to get through to a police officer who comes out and inspects the house and just finds like this house of horrors. So aside from the severed head in the popcorn bucket, scattered and spread around the rest of the house, the police find the same woman's arms, leg and her torso. Also, the object that one of the men kicked aside was her thigh. Oh, God. Most disturbing, her genitals have been removed from the torso and are nowhere to be found, and to this day have never been found. One of her hands is also missing. However, they do manage to find one which helps them to take fingerprints and keep them on file. 
So initially the police think that the body's actually been torn apart by stray dogs because I guess that's A, what you would want to think because the other side of it is just so horrible Mm -hmm. and because the parts are all scattered around the house, they think someone's died or been shot and then a dog's come in and ripped the body apart. However, a few days later, the autopsy is done and the coroner reveals that the body has been dissected in an anatomically correct fashion, leading them to realize that it's homicide. Oklahoma State Medical Examiner Dr. A.J. Chapman also surmises that the body has been cut up post-mortem, which I guess is a small... Relief. Yeah, small happiness you can bathe in. I suppose. So specific, because this is a cold case, but still an open, like it hasn't been officially closed, specific details about the cause of death are withheld and are still withheld to this day. However, there are some further details about the autopsy that were released, including the fact that the woman had been dead for approximately uh, four weeks and that her face had been purposely disfigured. And this part is so creepy. So whoever has killed her and dismembered her had cut open her mouth to increase the size of her smile, extending it from ear to ear. Oh, Jesus. Police at the time speculate that the woman is white, between 25 to 35, and is around 5 foot 4 with brown hair. However, blood tests shortly later reveal that she's actually of Native American origin and actually only between the ages of 18 to 22. Further examination of her dental... Uh, state and her intestinal tract lead investigators to suspect that she'd likely come from a lower socioeconomic background and then this leads them to also surmise that she had potentially been homeless at the time of her death and possibly came from a background of sex work based on the area that her body's found because it was kind of a known area for prostitutes to although when you know sex workers to solicit clients this woman's identity goes unknown for almost two decades. What? What? Yeah. So, Jesus. April 19th, 1979, a group of kids are playing together in Oklahoma City. They're playing basketball in a park with one of the kids' dogs. While they're playing, dog wanders off. It's gone for a couple of minutes. I don't like this. And then the dog comes back and they notice from a distance that the dog has something in its mouth that it's dragging along oh, the ground. No. When the kid runs up to the dog to see what it is, it's a human head. Oh. So obvious, obviously absolute chaos breaks out and the police are called and when they arrive they find that just like the first case, the woman's head has been severed and her face carved into just like Holy the first shit. one. They also find that the body parts are scattered around and bring in police dogs to help locate the rest of them. Now, unlike the first murder, the the body parts aren't all left in one location. They're actually left scattered around different several blocks, like over the space of several blocks, they're dropped in random places with some parts being wrapped in newspaper and sort of brown butcher's paper. It's very interesting. Mm. And these discoveries are made over the space of a day or two. Can I just interrupt you? Yeah. It's very interesting that they're being she's their victims have been dismembered and the body parts have been scattered, but within the same area? So within the same area, but within like a few blocks. Oh, okay. But the first one was in the same building. In the same house. That's what's interesting is 
even though it's a remote location that no one found for four weeks, the dead body. Yeah. The kind of idea is you want to take the dead body's parts and scatter them all over the place so that it's harder to find. Yeah. That's interesting. This time, it's not just bits of her body that they find. It's rather small chunks of flesh, skin and tissue that have been cut up into small pieces and they're completely absent of blood. Holy shit. Meaning that the individual pieces have been thoroughly cleaned and washed prior to them being dropped off by the killer. Like a fish, like gutted like a fish. Yeah. So over their search, police find the woman's pelvis, her left hand and a bloody shoe. Aside from that, all they find are random bits of flesh, which the autopsy reveals has been cut from the woman's body with a downward stroke from behind the victim's ears down towards the torso. Because of the way that she'd been hacked up and distributed around the town, it takes several days for them to properly ID her. However, on April 25th, the police announced that they have identified the victim as 22-year-old Arlie Bell Killian. That's, uh... Now, unlike the first victim, Ali, which I'll get into later, Ali had been seen by her family only hours before her head is found. Whoa. So Ali had had a pretty tough life, having a father who was a noted criminal, had and, and, told, and he... God, I just had another brain father. <laughs> uh, 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 so her father had both physically and sexually abused her, meaning at the age of 16, Ali moves out of home and falls into substance abuse. And police knew this from having picked her up prior for charges on vagrant, vagrancy or substance-related issues. Right. Now, despite her being identified a few days after her death, sadly, Ali's family continued to be tormented for weeks after with random pieces of Ali's body continuing to be dropped and found around the town of Oklahoma. After finding several pieces of her disposed body, the rest of her remains are finally found a block or two away from where our original victim in 1976 was found. This is when police first sort of fully suspect that it's likely they're dealing with a serial killer as well as a fact that it's probably someone who has local knowledge of Oklahoma and a specific knowledge of that area. So originally in 1976, this killer hadn't really attracted a lot of attention, probably due to the fact that the police surmised it was a homeless person. So no one has come forward to say someone's missing and the body goes identified. However, due to the nature of Ali's murder and the fact that pieces of her keep showing up, over the course of a week or two, this case receives enormous attention in the press and horrifies the entire neighbourhood as it would because people are walking around the neighbourhood terrified they're going to come across a body part. Another part, yeah. Also, unlike in the first case, there are several potential subjects who I'll, not subjects, suspects rather, who I'll get into a little later. Lovely. So then the killer goes quiet, at least in this district because we know what police were like. So it's a possibility that these things were happening and the cases have never been leaked. To give you a reminder, police districts didn't speak to each other in this time. So he goes quiet for seven years until March 1986 when Albert Archie is walking through his backyard less than a mile from where the first two bodies are found. 
In the alley behind his house, he finds the dismembered upper torso of a woman, a piece of her lower left leg and some other bits of skin and tissue, which just like the first crimes were washed and clean so that they appeared almost bloodless. Police are called and pretty quickly make connections to the past crimes and realize that this killer from seven years ago is back at it again. A few days later, the police are called for a small fire and the head of the victim is found in a garbage can which has been intentionally set alight. Due to some very unique tattoos, police are able to relatively quickly identify this woman as 22-year-old Tina Marsha Sanders, who was seen just one day before her body's found and was also believed to have possibly been a homeless woman with potential links to sex work. okay. Then almost two decades after her body is found, the first victim is identified as Kathy Lee Shackleford, and her family had sadly been searching for her for 17 years. Oh, that's so sad. So originally, Kathy's parents, I guess being sort of that stiff upper lip family that you sort of had from the 70s, when Kathy goes missing, they don't think to report it to the police because they just think... She's run away, like yep. it's not our place to bother the police. But when Kathy's parents pass away, Kathy's cousin, Andrew Medina, comes forward to the police to finally look into Kathy's disappearance and try and find her. When Andrew makes the calls, the police realize that Kathy's last sort of sighting is very close to when the body's found. And so the body's DNA is tested against Kathy's older sister and they make a match and can finally confirm the identity of Kathy. Right. And her family, after allegedly constantly receiving potential tips and sightings of Kathy around the country for the last 17 years, are devastated to know that she's been dead this entire time. Yeah. Which is very sad. So sad. It's horrible. So while the murders took place over a very long period of time, there are lots of things that can connect the cases and make it pretty undeniable that they're linked. And I guess the reason they can't officially say they're definitely linked is because no one's been caught. Well, then they're still investigating it, apparently. So all three victims were of Native American descent. They were all young homeless women who had grown up in poor communities and had potential ties to sex work, which police believe could like have led them to have been killed whilst with a client. Yeah, of course. It's easier to procure like uh, being in proximity to them essentially. Yeah. So all three victims were mutilated and dismembered in similar ways, although to this day police have never released the official cause of death for any of these women. So we don't know if they yeah. were murdered in the same way. All three victims had had their genitals removed and these were never found. So police surmises is likely a trophy that the killer has kept. At first, due to their dismemberment, police had thought it was likely that someone in the medical field had committed the crime. However, in later years, it's revealed that it's not actually that technical or difficult to cut up a human body. Really? Because they, well, because I guess you just cut the joints. Yeah, but you say that, but every time I'm butchering a chicken, I'm trying to find the fucking joints, thinking... Fuck, I keep fucking it up every No, but time. I think originally they had thought, like back in the 70s, they thought that only oh. a doctor could have possibly done it. And then right. later on, they're like, oh, actually, it's not that 
technical. Like it's physically difficult, but it's not that like tech, you don't need a medical degree yeah. to okay. do it. Now Makes the sense. FBI were brought in to provide a prof- like a an official profile, and this has also never been made public. But people have surmised going off our good mate Johnny Johnny G. Douglas. Yes, I don't know if he did the profile uh, for this one because it's never been released. But they've looked at his previous profiles for similar sort of murders, and investigators have sort of advised that they can we can likely draw the following conclusions about this killer. Okay. And this is kind of where it gets interesting going off some of the later suspects. So likely the killer was a young loner with a hatred of women potentially due to contracting an STI from one or suffering a volatile upbringing with a female family member. Mm-hmm. Investigators suspect the killer may have been incarcerated at some point, which would explain the time between killings or could also be explained by potential military service. Huh. Oh. Especially for the time as well, those, those years. Yeah, police also surmise that it's likely the killer had severe mental health issues or psychosis issues. Of course. Okay, so the theories behind who potentially could have done this, which have, I I won't get you too excited, these have all been like officially written off, but they're still interesting to look at. So in 2007, a man called Roderick Webster was arrested in Oklahoma for a crime just as pretty awful as these three. So in March 1989, 75-year-old Audrey Harris was murdered inside her apartment. Roderick was eventually linked to the crime through DNA and is serving a life sentence for this. However, the reason that people think he's a potential subject is A, the nature of the murder and B, the fact that he lived in close proximity to where all the other murders occurred. So when Audrey was murdered, the killer used a knife to cut her open and started pulling out her intestines and organs with his bare hands, cutting off her genitals and throwing them against the wall. Whoa, that is some hatred. Yeah. Roderick lived in the area where Audrey's murder and the other murders took place, and he also worked as a nurse's aide, meaning he could have had he would have had some knowledge of medical stuff and body parts and how yeah. the body's put together. However, the fact that the crime was so different in the fact that it was a single, very violent, passionate, spur-of-the-moment kind of murder, and the fact that the MO of Audrey is so incredibly different to the other three women, it's been ruled that he's likely not involved. Yeah, and the victims don't match up at all. No. I think it was just the... The genitals, the genitals and the violent nature of the crime plus the close proximity that yeah, have people thinking. It's too convenient to rule that. Now, I'm going to skip ahead because I had written this in a different order, but I want to leave the most interesting one till last. Okay, awesome. So the next big suspect was another convicted killer from Texas, Henry Lee Lucas, who would later become linked to hundreds of crimes across America due to his own mouth that didn't want to stop moving. <laughs> so Lucas, who would also become known as the confessional killer, yeah, yeah. notably committed a series of murders and violent assaults between the 60s and early 80s, but confessed to dozens of murders over a prolonged period of time, 
people think he likely did this to try and delay his own execution. Mm -hmm. So after being arrested in Texas in 1983, Lucas began confessing to crimes all over the country. Among them prominently was the 1970 murder of Arlie Killian from Oklahoma City. Uh, the graphic details of which have been shared among law enforcement agencies throughout the U.S. Over the next year, investigators from Oklahoma City would meet with Lucas on several occasions, interviewing him and hoping to gain more information about him, about the crime, rather. Over time, however, it becomes pretty clear that he's only confessing to all these crimes because he got things like cigarettes and coffee whenever he would be interviewed by the police or the FBI. So he was getting all these nice little perks. It was an incentive for him to... Yeah, and it was also an incentive for them to prolong his death sentence to potentially get more information about crimes. Yeah. Eventually, he's also discredited because he admits to crimes that basically occurred at the same time on different sides of the country. And it's, you know, he can't be in two places at once. Of course, yeah. And it's also later shown that Lucas is showed case files for these murders he keeps confessing to, meaning he would have obviously known details of the crime mm -hmm. because he was shown the case file. So the one I found the most interesting, the last suspect I'm going to talk about, was Arlie's brother, Perry Lee Killian, who was the brother of the second victim. Right. Now, the reason people think he's a prime suspect was the day Ali went missing and was murdered, Perry had just escaped from a mental health facility where he was being held. <laughs> okay. And the reason he was being held was he attempted to attack and murder his grandmother with a knife in 1978. So prior to this, just a few days before the very first victim was found, he was arrested for killing, killing and butchering his grandmother's dogs with a hatchet. Okay, well, hey. And this is the thing that I found the most interesting. So police were called and Perry immediately confesses and leads the police to a bucket where he'd placed the dog's heads inside. Holy shit. Just like how Kathy's head was found in the popcorn in, bucket, yeah. which is what I found the most interesting. However, after Perry is taken into custody after being caught, body parts of Ali's continue to show up and the way the parts are sort of being dropped make police suspect that it's done in real time. It's not like they've been dropped and people are discovering them. Mm. So they kind of rule him out because he's in their custody when this is happening. Also, when they start to talk to him, it becomes pretty clear that he has some severe mental health issues to the point where he's basically incoherent, meaning it's really unlikely that he would have been able to stage such a meticulous crime and never have been caught. It's more so like a he was more so of a passionate killer than a Yeah, well he had some likely bodies. some very severe psychosis issues when it comes yeah. to his mental health. So it's not someone who could carefully dismember someone and clean their body parts and scatter and them then methodically. Taunt law enforcement by dropping them around yeah. the city at random and intervals. Scattered yeah. intervals, yeah. Intermitted. That's someone who has a lot of control. Yeah. And that's those are completely unsolved. It's a cold case to this day. Shit. And, yeah. But they're still being investigated to this day. Well, I think crimes like that, it's like the Golden State Killer. Like they never really stop being investigated. Mm. Um, but it looks like a lot of information about the crime is still withheld. 
So whether or not there was DNA found at the crime scenes was something I couldn't really find anywhere. The cause of death was something I couldn't find anywhere. So it might be, you know, it might be like a Golden State Killer thing. One day DNA testing will advance enough and they'll catch the son of a bitch. Yeah, I think the unfortunate thing with a lot of these cold cases is that the harsh reality of it is potentially that killer might be dead. Mm. That's the thing. You you know, we can test for DNA on uh, living people like the Golden State Killer, but we can't really find DNA on people who are deceased. Yeah. And I mean, it did happen in the 70s. So even if the person doing it in the 70s was only 20, that means they're in their 70s now, likely. Yeah. So, I mean, they could still be alive or they could have passed away. I think someone, if it was to be the brother, it'd be very difficult. He sounds like he has some pretty severe mental health issues that hinder him from doing things a normal person can do, obviously. Yeah, for sure. So the, the, the person doing these murders and these murders are, you know, it, it's, it, we can't really pin them together definitively, but it seems like they're connected for sure. Mm. But this person would have had to be able to talk to a, a sex worker and get them into their car. Well, I think it's kind yeah, of hard for what... someone with mental health issues to, to do that. Yeah. I just found uh, the reason I wanted to talk about that thing was I found the bucket it was a very weird coincidence. Yeah, of course. That's the unfortunate thing about a lot of these killings is when it comes to the victims being primarily sex workers, it's a they're an easy target. Well, yeah, and the fact that these women were all Native American women in That's the seventies. That's an 70s. interesting correlation. So well. it was a very it was they were homeless Native American sex workers. So an incredibly vulnerable. marginalized, vulnerable group of people. Yeah, it's very unfortunate that they also happen to be Native American. Yeah. That's just a a very unfortunate thing, but a very interesting connection. But I just found, like, the more I started reading about this case, the more I couldn't... I mean, I understand cold cases obviously don't get as much attention because you don't also have the parallels. Because, you know, half the reason why we do this show and the reason we talk about the crimes is talking about the person who did it is so interesting to delve into, I guess, the psyche of what sort of a person you have to be to commit these crimes. So I guess when you have a cold case, you're removing that factor of interest, Mm. which I guess is a reason why people aren't as invested in cold cases. But I, the more I read about it and how awful and brutal and taunting, like the... One article I read was saying that it's likely he was doing this to purposely taunt the families and the police because he would continue to drop body parts up to two weeks after the body was originally found. Yeah. Like. Just a prolonged. Yeah. That is so sick. It's, um, it's, I keep going back to it because it's really captured me, but the fact the, the like correlation between the victims because we learned from son of sam that he hunted every single night but sometimes wouldn't be able to kill 
up yeah. to like months apart. Yeah. But he was out every night looking for potential victims. That's yeah. But they needed to be specific victims to for him. For him to want to For him personally, yeah. it was a passion. It was a crime of passion, uh, a victim that he would see just first thing out of public. He, mm. No premeditated thoughts on the victim. It was just a, someone that he saw. But it had to be a specific person. Yeah. And it seems like this is a very similar thing. It doesn't seem like the people that he knows. Or maybe he does. I also found it really interesting, which none of the other articles I read sort of made this connection. Something I found interesting was the crimes, despite the fact being committed years apart, are actually very close in time. Two of them are in April and one is in March, which makes you kind of wonder... Is there something about that time of the year that is making this person... Yeah. You know what I mean? It's very strange that out of three, obviously this person only had three known victims, but it's very odd that two of those victims are in the same month, very close together. I think one was the 6th and one was the 10th and one was in March. Well, we've learned from, um, from killers like Ed Kemper... There's always a pattern. There's well, always something that triggers it. There's, they have methods of trying to stave the hunger to kill. So they have returning to the scene of the crime, keeping souvenirs, often giving them sexual gratification. And, and even if the crimes aren't particularly sexually motivated, there's sexual gratification in the murders themselves. It acts like a, a craving. Yeah, you know, well, like, and and it seems like from this, there could have been, they would have the killing, take a souvenir, take go back to the where they found, they put the bodies rather sorry, where they committed the murders. It seems like someone who could, probably could have kept their hunger tame for around a year. Yeah, but it's also very interesting when you think of the time period. Like, the second victim, Ali, her family was noted as having seen her only hours Hours before before her head is found. So that is such a quick timeline for someone to pick a woman up. You know, as I said, it wasn't – their genitals were taken, so I don't know if the police were ever able to surmise whether they were sexually assaulted or if it's just not publicly available information. But it's a very short timeline for someone to pick up a woman, potentially sexually assault them, murder them, dismember their body, clean the body parts, and then drop them. Keep in mind, this was during the day as well. There were kids out playing basketball. So this isn't like this person dropped these body parts in the dead of night. Walking around Oklahoma in potentially broad daylight with body parts wrapped in newspaper and not one person reports seeing anything. What I find interesting is the killings seem relatively spontaneous, right? Yeah. Like it's not too carefully thought out, but they all have similar professions, possibly. Yeah. Similar backgrounds and homelessness and leaving home, and they're all Native American. And around the same age. And nearly exactly the same age. I think the last two victims were 22 exactly. Um, But the killings seem... Random. Spontaneous, random and spontaneous. and But not at the same time. They're victims who can be procured very easily, but 
seeing her the second victim seeing hours before she's dead, but she has a similar she has she's very similar to the, all the other victims. It has to be somewhat premeditated. Yeah, for sure. Because he would have to um and that was actually one of the articles I was reading said that it's likely he would have done scoping. Yeah. To find women that were around the same age and of the same ethnicity. It's crazy, but it would have had to be in And again, this is why I can't believe I've never heard anything about this case before because it's so interesting in both the similarities between, like, the profile of the killer and the crime, like, oh, it's just awful. Like, dismembering a human being and dropping their parts, it's it's really quite awful. It could have also potentially been someone someone close to the victims. Yeah. So the second victim hours before her head's found, she's seen by the family. Mm. Um, yeah. We just don't know. But the only other way, like you could explain that was, would be if it was someone that the family knew, yeah. like it could potentially be like they, it was someone that wasn't too suspicious to them that they would, you know, call to think about it or, you know, there's there's so many different possibilities mm. to it, and it's no wonder this is a an open case. Yeah, I would love to know more details about this case. Yeah, it's very very interesting. Wow, it's fascinating. Yeah, and that's my story for the week. Wow, thank you for that. You are welcome. That was a, a very interesting story. I thought it was, which is why I did it. Mm. Funny that. It's kind of how the show works, isn't it? Yeah, imagine if one day I was like, yeah, I actually thought that story was shit, but I told it anyway. We might get to that (laughs) point, you know, like in five years when we run out of stuff to talk about. Yeah, isn't that... It's kind of weird to think one day, potentially, we may run out of stories to tell. I mean, for the Earth's sake, I hope one day we run out of stories to tell. Yeah. But, uh... There's there's so many, though. There's so many. There's so many. There's so many... Indiv- like just counting the famous serial killers from the fifties to the nineties, there's so many of them. And we yeah. haven't even really gone international yet either. No, that's the thing. It's mostly been America based and Australia based. And then a few Australian based. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And we've really kind of scratched the surface on said people. There's yeah. also people we can return to at some point. So, who knows? The show will just keep going and going, going and going. You'll never get rid of us. Yeah, as much as you would like to. <laughs> you will never people get rid of us. People are like, please stop making these yeah. shows. You stupid Vegemite eating, thong wearing. Kangaroo riding. Yeah, shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this episode, we have a new little mini segment. Uh, we don't have like a proper name for it yet, so we're just going to call it Six Degrees of Separation, although I'm going to try and come up with something punorific by next week. Well, punorific, that's a great name. There's no relation to the segment. No, though. I just like the word punorific. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I think it's a great word. Good job. So, as I said at the beginning... One of our listeners has very, very kindly told a very interesting story he has about his sort of six degrees six degrees of separation with a killer. So we're going to play that for you now. This is Tom's story. 
and then we're going to have like a quick chat about it and then do our outro and we'll be out of your hair. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, listen to this ep- this part of the segment. And go. Um, back in the late 80s, I worked at a body shop in San Antonio, Texas. Across from the body shop in San Antonio, Texas was a taco house, appropriately named Taco House. It was run by a really pleasant guy named Mike Rodriguez. Um, he made an insane taco. It was, it was amazing. Every day we'd eat, uh, we'd go over there at 6 in the morning and we would have a couple of breakfast tacos, a cup of coffee, some juice. Every day, uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday. Um, there were four of us usually. Sometimes Mike Rodriguez's wife, Terry, would be there. Also, just crazy pleasant lady. But at one point, we got to work. A man went across the street, and the taco house was closed. So we went back, and then just was like, oh, oh I, we don't know what happened, da-da-da-da-da. So we... Uh, went on with the day. Later in the day, we saw police cars across the street at the taco house. So one of us went over and we asked the police what was going on, because you could do that back then. The police didn't um, automatically uh, arrest you for being a person. So uh, the policeman said that there was some trouble with the Rodriguez family and that the taco house would be closed for a bit. Um, but that was all he was willing to tell us. So we watched the news, and that evening on the news, it turns out that Michael Anthony Rodriguez had paid to have Teresa killed. Um, oh, it's windy out. I don't know if this is going to affect the recording or not. Um, so he had Teresa killed. Um, over time, a couple of things happened. We had to find another place to have breakfast, most important. The other thing was, it turned out that... Um, you know, the whole story, and you can look it up on Google and see what it all is. Um, he paid somebody to kill Terry. They had gone to the movies, and the guy was waiting at the house. Um, and apparently it was all for her insurance money. Uh, so um, over time, um, pretty much put it out of our heads. The Tago House uh, reopened under a different manager. Mike went to jail. I moved away from Texas, but I found out later when I became interested in true crime, I looked up to see if that story had a conclusion. And as it turns out, Michael Anthony Rodriguez was convicted, of course, as well as the guy who did the actual killing. Michael tried to escape from jail, um, succeeded in escaping from jail with seven other or six other people. They became the Texas Seven, and during the escape, Michael shot one of the police officers and was executed back in 2008. But yeah, I, that's my closest um, story to, or that's my brush with the um, convicted killer. That is so, f- Holy so shit. interesting. Yeah. Like, to think that, because I guess we can relate because our apartment building, we have a cafe out the front. It's the same thing. Like the guy that runs the cafe is just the nicest man you'll ever meet. He makes an excellent cup of coffee. And it's so like, it's so crazy to think someone that you interact with on a daily basis could turn out to not only murder his, well, not murder his own wife, but pay to have someone murder his own wife, but then go on to escape from prison and 
murder a police officer. Fucking crazy, dude. But I so relate to the disappointment of your favorite cafe or yeah. breakfast place being closed. That's yeah. It's it's a hard thing. So I imagine like uh, Americans who aren't pieces of shit finding out. I think it was Chick Fil A's like a religious owned uh, company, and they're like highly homophobic. Mm. It's like finding that out. Yeah, your favorite like, taco place was run by a yeah. Like I can't murderer. eat here now, or like yeah, you're like damn it. Things on <laughs> Apple to Apple um, Apple streaming service, and you're like Apple's a terrible fucking company. I don't really want to watch this stuff. But that story, oh my gosh! It, yeah. Like, and it really, truly brings to light the fact that I guess, I guess we talk a lot about like really deranged serial killers, but then you have these people who are maybe not serial killers, but are terrible human beings that just reside beside you and appear like completely normal human yeah. beings. Yeah, and think about um the the, the Fargo, Minnesota story. Yeah. yeah. These seemingly normal human beings that just so kind of crazy. have these spur of the moment episodes where they're just trying to make some money, you know, and they're separating themselves from the murders and getting someone else externally to do it. And it kind of yeah. separates them completely from the act of it so they can kind of justify so the, the deaths. Yeah, it's insane. But it's very um, cool, crazy. thank you so much for taking time out of your day to record that for us. We really appreciate Thanks, it. Baby. And I hope. Everyone listening to this episode really appreciated as well because that story was just really, really cool. Yeah, and if you have any submissions that you think would be yeah, an interesting story, please. Yeah, if you please, have a six degrees of separation story with a killer or a murderer or a cult, cult leader. leader. Hey, hey, up top. Nice. Or uh, alien, wrongfully convicted, just anything interesting. Rude barista. Yeah. <laughs> Have you shot your barista? <laughs> we want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, we promise please. we won't call the police. We will call the police. We will probably call the police. <laughs> anyway, that was like the coolest story to start this new segment off. I, I hope that we haven't started on a real high and it's like I, all downhill from yeah, here. I can't it's believe like he was part time, of the Texas 7. The guy that sold my brother's sister's dog stabbed a man. <laughs> And that's my story. Yep. I was drinking with a guy at the RSL <laughs> and four years later I found out he used to be a boxer. Do you know what's really interesting is it's really actually highly likely. How long has your family lived in Ingadine for? Since I was nine. It's super possible that someone that your folks or grandparents know Heard like was around when the Paul Wilkinson thing went down. Well, we were there. We were in yeah. Ingeting when the Paul Wilkinson thing happened. We should dig into that. Uh, we anyway, did. we did. We talked about that. No, no, no. But we should find someone who like. Oh right. Wants to do the six degrees of separation thing for the oh, Paul yeah, Wilkinson great thing. Idea. Let's finish this episode. What are you grateful for this week? I am grateful that you have been returned to me safe and sound albeit with some bandages, but I'm just glad that Aww, you're okay. That's a bit cute. Yeah. Also, can I can I just spoil the uh, the veil of podcast recording? We've already done this. We fucked up and we've had to <laughs> re-record this segment. So Tom has already said that. Oh. So my response the first time was I didn't yeah. expect it. It but seems I knew fake. You were it's only say. because it was. It was. Fake. We're not actually dating. Yeah, I didn't we give hate a shit. each other. 
in I real life. Wish the sky we sleep was in separate houses. Yeah, you could bandage that whole face for like. Yeah. <laughs> Please just put bandages on the whole thing. I never want to look at you again. Just put a plastic bag over it. <laughs> jump in the shower. That was your joke though, because I'm not allowed to get my bandages wet, which is like really. How am I going to do that? Because they're on my eye. And Tom was like, just put a plastic bag over your head. And I was like, cool, <laughs> thanks. That'll yeah. work. Yeah, it'll work. It'll get the job done. But uh, might fill to, up sorry to shatter the illusion of podcasts. We do occasionally have to re-record things. And that's the beauty of not doing this fucking shit live. This is why we don't do it live. Yeah, which we might end up doing at some point. Maybe when we... maybe we'll do live shows. We'll come yeah. and entertain you in real life. If our anxiety we'll... miraculously <laughs> dissipates. Yeah, we'll just we'll... be like these two shaking little chihuahuas on yeah. the stage. Just like, um, I don't hello. know what to say. <laughs> but uh, like to hair. my grateful thing is the Australian healthcare system. I am incredibly grateful for that this week because... I had to get, albeit minor surgery, but I had to get surgery and be anesthetized and have something cut off my face and get bandaged up and have recovery care and all that jazz. And it didn't cost me a cent. And that is all through the public healthcare system. I just had to rock up, show them my little green Medicare card and left without a bill. Mm. And the fact that I can go and do that. I think the fact that the show has grown a lot over the past couple of weeks and it's grown a lot in America, like talking to people from America, you kind of realize how much we take our healthcare system for granted. And this week I'm very grateful. Yeah, I, th- I think that. it's that a mixture of that and also just the healthcare system kind of failing in America. That's true, you but know. that's a whole other thing. It is, and it's not you the americans fault it's no it's your the system, system that your you live in government but uh we are very like i'm just so grateful that it was really easy and it wasn't like shitty second degree care either it was like good care i had like seven people in the operating room and like everyone was lovely and everyone was checking asking if i was okay making sure i was comfortable and making sure i was warm and when i was cold they got me a blanket like it was all very First world care for free. Lovely. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. Bing. Awesome. I think that's the episode. That's so, it. thank you for listening. Fuck off. <laughs> Come on. Take that back. That's so rude. Stop listening to the show. Yeah, Why stop. are you here? Why are you even still here? Yeah. What the is, show sucks. What kind of freak are you? You must be a serial killer <laughs> if you're listening to this part of the fucking <laughs> podcast. You freaks. Oh, dear. Wow, that went downhill. Pieces of shit. Stop. Just- <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should be a, a segment I'll do at the very end of the show. Just mocking anyone just, that listens to the show. Yeah, I'll cuss out anyone who we're listens just, to this part. Look, let's be real. We're all just self-loathing, anxiety-ridden millennials for the most part. Not everyone. We're grateful. Honestly, I'm so grateful for anyone that listens to the show because... I'm yeah. somewhere in between self-loathing and narcissistic. Yeah, you are. You flip between the two. Yeah. Anyway, that went to a weird place. Uh, so keep your eyes on me because I might do some shit. That's that's a really ominous way to end a true crime podcast. Next week, we will be covering the murders of Tama Gill. Tama J. The J stands for just stabbing people frequently. Stop making me laugh. Ju- I can't laugh. Judicial system against me. 
Oh dear. Judge this is why poorly. this is what happens when we record late at night and have yeah. many glasses of wine. It gets a little hysterical towards the end. Bit, oh my god, I'm gonna try this for the fourth <clears throat> time now. Can you please shut up? Thank you for listening. Catch us next week. Check us out on socials. We are the BSC podcast on everything. Thank you again so much to Tom for giving us your story. We really appreciate it. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.